Homelessness is on the rise in New York City. According to a recent report from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, homelessness is up 11 percent from 2014. The survey found 75,323 people living on the streets or in shelters in the Big Apple. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Mayor de Blasio has been taking a lot of heat for his handling of the homeless situation, but he recently unveiled a $2.6 billion plan to help tackle the problem. The 15-year plan would create 15,000 units of housing that would include social services for veterans, mentally disabled people, and others in need of assistance. On today's show, we'll explore other efforts to help combat homelessness in the city, including Councilman Mark Levine's push to stem evictions. This is the number one cause for families winding up in our homeless shelter. Also coming up, we'll hear how one organization uses running to combat homelessness. If you can run, run a mile, and you never thought you could run a mile before, or run a 5K race in Central Park with New York Roadrunners, what else can you do in your life? But first, award-winning storyteller Regina Ress shares this tale of a homeless woman in her longtime neighborhood, Greenwich Village. I've been walking around the streets of New York long enough to have watched several sea changes in the fortunes of the city and its folks. The ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows. I'm currently noticing quite a rising tide of people sleeping on the street, not just on the benches, but in cardboard boxes jammed into doorways and against walls. And I'm reminded of my neighbor, Brenda. I knew her about 20 years ago. She remains one of my favorite New Yorkers, tough, optimistic, generous, and wise. Here's a story I wrote about her. Brenda was crouched on the sidewalk at the corner of MacDougall and Houston Street one crisp October morning, and that was strange because usually she sat on one of the benches in front of my apartment building. On this particular morning, she was holding a wise potato chip bag, and in it she had hidden a bottle of Heineken beer. Camouflage, she said. I squatted down beside her. The sidewalk was clean from the good long rain we'd had the night before. It was a brilliant October day. And there was Brenda, drinking a beer from a potato chip bag at ten o'clock on a Sunday morning, greeting the old Italian ladies on their way to St. Anthony's for Mass. I sugar, you going to church? It was genuine interest. She was not asking for a handout. She was sending out some love. Pure Brenda. That was how she first pulled me into her orbit a year or so before this encounter. And all that was back in the 1990s. I heard a cheerful, friendly voice that greeted me as though she'd known me for ever so long. She told me how good I looked that day. I remember I was feeling good and my radiance and hers were matched, two smiling women exchanging hellos on the street. She was so open and friendly, I thought I'd met her somewhere before. But I soon figured out she was a homeless woman who happened to be sitting on a bench in front of my building. For a while, we would simply exchange greetings and smiles, sometimes brief conversation. She never asked for anything, and for a long time, I didn't offer. Then I started once in a while to buy her cartons of juice, usually apple or orange. One day I asked her what kind of juice she liked. Cranberry, she said with a great smile. And so after that, when I brought her juice, it was cranberry. Brenda was quite beautiful. High cheekbones, reddish-brown skin, curly hair usually under some bright cap. She changed caps often. But mostly what you noticed about her 
was her loving presence. She was very present, except when she was drunk, and then she was apologetic. Once when I was sitting on the bench talking to her, she told me her aunt had read Langston Hughes' poetry to her when she was young. I told her that my mother had known him when she was in college and that I had a couple of books of his, one of them inscribed. We beamed at each other. At some point, she asked me what I do. I said, I'm a storyteller. Now, most people look pretty blank at that one, but not Brenda. Oh, she said, like Burl Ives, he was the greatest. (laughs) That was another occasion for an exchange of smiles. So there we were that Sunday in early October, sitting together on the sidewalk. What's the view from down here, I asked, referring to from the sidewalk. She offered back an enthusiastic assessment of Greenwich Village. I meet a lot of gay people, she said. They are so nice, really interesting people. Oh, and I meet a lot of actors and the old Italian ladies and the children. It is so nice to see the little girls with their daddies and she nodded toward a man and his seven- or eight-year-old daughter who were crossing Houston Street hand-in-hand on their way to church. I asked her if she'd eaten. She pointed to a big brown paper bag in her lap. Black forest ham and Zito's bread, she said. But I'd love something to drink. Go get me some cranberry juice sugar. And she handed me a dollar bill. I went to the deli. I bought her a juice and a piece of coffee cake that had cranberries in it. She beamed. During our conversation that day, I brought up the three firemen from the firehouse just across the street who'd been killed some months earlier in a fire in Soho, how the neighborhood had responded. I made a large circle in front of me with my arms. This neighborhood had held that firehouse with such an outpouring of love and concern it it touched everyone. For a month or more, there had been a kind of shrine of flowers and photos and other gifts in front of the black and purple-draped building. This was all before 9-11. We were not used to losing our firemen. Brenda responded, Oh, I knew those men. I used to talk to them when they were out washing the fire trucks. I took them flowers. My eyes filled. And when I left her that morning... I had the deep understanding that I'd been talking to one of my neighbors. New York City, it's so often called a collection of small towns, but at times we're so overwhelmed with the sheer numbers of people and the hostility that so often comes at us on the streets, we forget. People like Brenda are part of our neighborhoods. They are our neighbors. A few days before Halloween, that same October, I was returning from telling stories to a group of ragtag kids at a recreation center way uptown, and I was thinking about storytelling as social action. I got to the West 4th Street subway station, and as I started walking up the exit ramp, there was Brenda leaning against the wall. She was a mess. And I remember there was a young flute player leaning against the wall opposite her. The sweetness of his music echoed in the tunnel. It was one of those New York City juxtapositions of opposites. Hey, baby, come here. Loud and clear with that edge, I knew it meant drunk. She was wearing white tennis shoes with no laces, a dirty red sweatshirt, gray coat, and pants. And with tears in her eyes, she said, My mother-in-law died. I tried to determine if this was good news or bad. It was hard to tell. Brenda was pretty incoherent. I asked if she'd eaten. No. 
I handed her some money to get some food, and I said no liquor. Then I realized she couldn't even make it to the takeout place on 6th Avenue. I took the money back. I said I would bring her dinner. She requested beef barbecue, mashed potatoes, and gravy. I told her to stay put. I dashed out of the subway and up to the barbecue joint on the corner. The mashed potatoes and gravy cost extra, and I had to pay for another entrance fee to get back into the subway. And when I got back to the corridor, Brenda was gone. But her tattered paper shopping bag was still there. I went down to the platform, and I found her sitting on a bench, smoking a cigarette. She asked if I would bring her bag down from the corner. I left her. I went to fetch it. That bag was very heavy. God knows what was in it. She was eating very slowly when I returned. She handed me a dollar and said she'd pay back the rest later. I accepted the dollar, figuring it helped cover my subway re-entry. I mean, I had offered her dinner. And I left her there, with her bag, and her meal, hoping she'd eat it all, hoping she'd be okay. I left with a good luck and went home to have dinner with my son. Storytelling is social action. Life as social action. October 31st was the next time I saw her. She was sitting right in front of the building waiting for the Greenwich Village Halloween parade to begin. Brenda called out to me with her signature, Hey, sugar! And she handed me a dollar, said there would be more coming. She was settling in to watch the parade. I did not argue with her. The next day, Brenda was hanging out on the block. She handed me a $10 bill and said that a tourist had given it to her during the parade. She said she wanted to pay me back for the dinner. I gave her the change she had coming. We were square. She also told me that Silvano, who owns and operates the fancy Italian restaurant on the block, had given her a $100 bill the night before. She said she figured he was drunk, and she took it back to him, but he made her keep it. I wondered how many of us were looking out for Brenda. But Brenda was also looking out for us as best she could. I remember one time my friend Lorna's father died. I was walking over to her apartment with a big chicken I had roasted. What you got cooking, girl? What's in that pot? And there she was, bright and early with a tiny plastic bottle of vodka, which she tried to hide from me. Brenda was very apologetic about her drinking. I opened the pot lid. I told her it was from my friend whose dad had died. Well, first she insisted on giving me a plastic bag to carry it in, and she quickly emptied hers of its six bars of zest soap in their dirty wrappers. Then she tried to give him or me some money to go in and buy a sympathy card. I, I finally convinced her that I would take her love and a hug to Lorna. That would be enough. She smiled. Another time when I passed by Brenda, she beckoned to me. She handed me a dollar bill, told me to buy myself some juice, some cranberry juice, sugar. And I said, Brenda, I don't need your money. Thank you, though, thank you. And she smiled. You bought me juice. You buy me juice. One hand washes the other, sugar. I took the dollar, and I bought myself the juice. It was sweet. At one point during these couple of years talking with her, Brenda disappeared for a few months. When she showed up again, she'd gained some weight. She was looking great. She had found her way into a refuge of some sort for a while. And she said to me, Sugar, do you know the best thing you can have? The key to your own room. Hmm. The key to your own room. For sure. For sure. But at some point, Brenda disappeared for good. 
I would see folks at the laundromat or the drugstore. We would check to see if any of us had seen her, but she was gone. She is gone. But not from my mind, nor my son's, nor from my story, which I tell when I can. She was my neighbor, my tough, optimistic, generous, and wise neighbor, Brenda. Regina Ress is an award-winning storyteller. This is Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. New York City Councilman Mark Levine says eviction is one of the leading causes of homelessness. And that's why he's pushing for additional resources to help keep New Yorkers in their homes. Councilman Levine is on the phone with me now to talk more about his efforts. Councilman, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, George. So here we are heading into the colder weather months. A lot of concern these days about homelessness. What's your concern? Uh, Well, homelessness is near record highs with uh, 57, almost 58,000 New Yorkers in our shelter system every night. I think we fear those numbers will increase once the weather turns cold. And unlike what many people wrongly assume, the people in our shelters are not predominantly single men. In fact, two-thirds of them are families, uh, a heartbreaking 40% are children. That's 25,000 children in our shelter system every night. And the number one cause for family homelessness is actually not mental illness or substance abuse. It is eviction. Uh, This is the number one cause for families winding up in our homeless shelter. And it's why I've been doing so much work along with my colleagues and with the mayor to try uh, and change the game in housing court so that we end the eviction epidemic. So, Councilman, explain this legislation that you have out there to tackle this issue. Yeah, this is Intro 214, a bill we introduced last year that would, for the first time, establish a right to counsel for low-income tenants in housing court in New York City. This is the fir- would be the first jurisdiction in America to establish this right. Of course, we know that people who face uh, criminal charges have a right to counsel, but in civil court, you're on your own if you don't have the money. And the result is that only 10% of tenants in housing court have attorneys. Nearly all landlords do. That's an incredibly unequal playing field. And we believe the city uh, should change that by guaranteeing that all low-income tenants have an attorney when they face the prospect of losing their home. And when we do that, we're going to reduce homelessness. We're going to reduce the loss of affordable housing because so many of the evictions are in apartments that are currently rent-regulated and they go market rate once they're empty. We'll save money for the city because we won't spend as much on homeless shelters. And most importantly, will reduce the terrible human cost of eviction and homelessness. Let's talk about dollars and cents. How much would it actually cost to provide a tenant with an attorney? For the programs we currently have in place, which are significant, I should point out, we have several million dollars allocated towards providing legal assistance to tenants, and that allocation has increased dramatically in recent years. Going back two or three fiscal years, we were only putting $6 million a year to tenant legal services, uh, thanks to Significant new money that the mayor's put in and the council's put in, that's going to be at over $60 million once we um, uh, fully grow out the program in another year or two. So tenfold increase. But the case, the per case expense is fairly modest. It's about 2500 on average for each housing court case. Now compare that to what we spend on the back end. Uh, in homeless shelters, we spend 40000 about per year per family. And the average stay is now over a year. It's about 14 months. So the return on investment, if we spend a little bit of money up front 
on attorneys in housing court and can prevent some evictions and some homelessness on the back end, the city is actually going to save a tremendous amount of money. And homelessness costs the city money in other ways, too, not just in homeless shelters, but homeless um, individuals are more likely to wind up uh, in the emergency room, uh, in city hospitals. They're more likely to uh, need unemployment insurance if they lose their job. The Department of Ed spends more money educating homeless kids, in part because they pay for busing from shelters back to the old neighborhood school. So there's all sorts of ways that evictions and homelessness are costing the city money. And we can reduce those costs and avoid a lot of hardship for thousands of families in New York if we can just give tenants a fair shake in housing court. Councilman, thanks so much for your time. Anytime, George. Thank you. That was New York City Councilman Mark Levine. He represents the 7th District in northern Manhattan. Finally today, how one organization is pounding the pavement, so to speak, to end homelessness. Back on My Feet uses running to put homeless individuals on a path toward a brighter future. I was recently joined in the studio by Rachel Sparks, program director for Back on My Feet New York City, and two of the organization's members, Mark and Matt. Mark is on Back on My Feet's Team Bowery, and Matt, Team ABC. So, Rachel, let me start with you. What's the mission of Back on My Feet? Sure. Back on My Feet is a national nonprofit throughout the United States that uses running as a way to catalyze change towards self-sufficiency in people's lives, particularly underserved populations, whether that's people who are transitioning out of homelessness, recovering from substance abuse, and or transitioning out of incarceration. So really using running to go towards self-sufficiency. So why running? What can running teach people about getting on the road to self-sufficiency? So many ways. Uh, Most of the ways that we find are positive positive self-image. If you can run, run a mile, and you never thought you could run a mile before, or run a 5K race in Central Park with New York Roadrunners, what else can you do in your life? And changing that image of yourself to then go forward and have the confidence to interview for a job or start a training program to get back into the job market. Or it could be also goal setting. Goal setting is another big way that running really makes that change you have, to, you have to train. You have to train if you want to run. It's not that immediate satisfaction. So if you're training for a half marathon, say for the United uh, NYC half marathon in March or the rock and roll half marathon, you have to train for a couple months. And if you train and you set those goals and you make that commitment, you can also set that goal, those goals, make the commitment for your rent once you move out of the facility that you're living in. Uh, So we find those are two major ways. I'm sure Matt and Mark also have other ways where they found running has certainly benefited them. Absolutely. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah. Um, A part of our training uh, that we do at the Bowery is uh, one where we're constantly on the go with trucks and food and all kinds of inventory. And um, we lift weights and we work out very hard and the Back on My Feet team is just another way of implementing training and running. I've come to find out that um, it's an art form. And uh, when you train to run, um, you run on the balls of your feet and you have this bounce and you have this this way that um, I just never really experienced before. It's really Had you run before in your life before this point? 
Um, in my early years, I used to run a lot in high school, you know, track, but uh, I was never very good at it. But uh, being with the Back on My Feet team uh, has introduced a new way of running for me that I've been able to embrace. It's been very good. So, Mark, what's your story? How did you end up in a situation where you found yourself homeless? I um, started in the early 80s as a telecommunications operator. Uh, I worked for the federal government. But then um, changes in life came to alcohol and drugs. And um, I found myself uh, homeless. Uh, I lost my job. Uh, had nowhere to live. Um, at the same time, I had a wife and three kids, and uh, we became separated. And um, over the years, I've struggled to um, restructure my life, um, but I wasn't able to really get things together until the Lord, uh, he led me to the Bowery Mission, and um, it's just been a blessing ever since. And so now you're at the Bowery Mission. Yes, yes. So... How would you say running is helping to reinstill yes. you yes. with the confidence to get out there again on your yeah, feet? Sure. Um, when I first started with the Back on My Feet team, I didn't have any endurance. I was just, you know, very tired. Um, I had pulled a muscle in my leg. and um, But um, the, the, the teachers that are with us, they, they coach you, they take their time with you, and, and they tell you what you need to do to get yourself in order. And you just follow their teaching, and um, it's not before long that you realize that, you know, you have endurance, you know. You just have qualities about yourself you didn't really realize you had before. And um, it's just a blessing to be with them. So, Matt, where does your story begin? Um, well, I guess I can say... Um Originally, um, I guess my teen years, I mean, I'm 30, you know, 31 today. So, um, you know, I, my story basically was, I guess, a combination of substance abuse and homelessness out of choice, basically. You know, um, I don't come from a bad area. I come from the Jersey Shore, you know, a de halfway decent neighborhood. But uh, I guess I just had, to, um, you know, I had like, a, you know, not much direction, I would say, when I was younger um, and at a young age like that, you know. You know about things like this, like drug substance abuse and whatnot, but um, you know you really don't know. It's you know I was still very naive, and um, you know I just started using recre recreational with friends. You know simple things like you know pot and stuff like that, but you know eventually all that progressed to harder things, and um, it just took me down a, a long crazy road for the last uh, I'd say 14 years or so. You know in and out of basically homelessness to. Um, um, uh, impatience to jails and you know I never I didn't know I, w I mean I, I knew there was you know something out there you know you could get yourself together and they had programs and everything like that but I never really uh, got into it or looked into it I just kept doing what I was doing but then I you know I got to the point you know I just looked at my side like uh, almost like an epiphany or something one day and it's just like you know I'm getting old and, and it's just not working and people I know are, are dying or in jail for long stretches crazy things you know and I just, you know, I came, I had I had morals uh, at one point, so, you know, I just, you know, I had that realization, like, this is this is not the life I want for my, it's not living at all, it's not the life I want for myself, so, you know, I, t I put myself in this place, and um, there's an inpatient program in the Lower East Side, and I didn't, I didn't hear, I didn't know anything about back on my feet, um, and, you know, until a little into the program, they came in and did a little uh, seminar type thing, you know, 
and and kind of explained what it was about and i felt like that was you know they were talking to me like that's for me you know, yeah why some, why was that talking to you well i mean like i said i started using when i was young but when i was young a teenager and everything else i was a very active kid i was into sports i you know i was on a baseball team i had a lot of friends and you know i could it could have went either way for me and maybe if i did have the better direction but i chose to go you know the, the way i did you know a lot to do with the crowd i was mixed up with and everything else but um it's always been something that sort up my alley, like I said, sports and everything else. I never really ran. Um, I was into, you know, everything. You can name it, bicycles, skateboards, football, this, that, you know, surfing, all that. You know, Jersey Shore, so. But, and then you tear your body up. I'm a young guy, but, you know, running like that for 14 years, I was, I just, you know, I was, right now I'm like 220, but I was like, I came in, I was 160 pounds about eight months ago, smoked that, you know, in real bad shape, just smoking cigarettes and everything else and drinking, doing the drugs, all that. So, you know, I, I made like a deal with myself when I'm coming in there. I'm going to, you know, get, you know, put it, try to get everything in order. So, you know, I first I quit the smoking and then um, I started this running thing and, you know, I started working out um, again. And So how long ago did you start running with Back on My Feet? Just, I'd say about four months ago. Just four months yeah. ago. So and was, we was, should say you ran the New York City Marathon <laughs> in November. That's right. Pretty amazing. I. <laughs> So, Matt, what's next for you? Where do you hope the road takes you in the future? Well, like I said, I would like to just um, take it back to my um, my uh, core values, which I was ra- you know, raised on, and, and, and become basically a, a self-sufficient member of society. I don't, you know, don't want to have to. This is embarrassing for me, to be honest, the, the whole where I put myself. You know, I didn't have any disabilities or anything like that. That's, that's not my story. So I had a chance, and, and um, I... I guess I, I went the wrong way, and, you know, I have another chance, so I don't want to waste it, and I want to make the best of it. Mark, what about you? What do you see the future hold for you? I'd like to be able to impart what I've learned to others that are in my sphere about running. Um, I know a lot of people that do work out, but they don't run. And so um, I'd like to try to, uh, you know, just extend that to others as, as a group you know, running as uh, a way to uh, build endurance. So, Rachel, how exactly does the program work? I mean, what kinds of benchmarks do you set for participants? Sure. When people start running with Back on My Feet, we start with a mile. We have a high standard of excellence where we believe everyone can run a mile. It doesn't matter how fast you do it, as long as you do it and put as Matt was saying, how running really is a metaphor for life, one foot in front of the other. And you complete that. And you complete that first goal when you start with a mile. Introduce yourself to the team. Get to know your body. Get acquainted with your body when you're running. If you haven't run in a while, if you haven't run at all, or if you have been engaging in negative health behaviors, getting back into it and getting to know your body. After that first mile, people join back on my feet for 30 days. 30 days and commit to 90% attendance. That's all we ask. Come out. It's totally voluntary. No one's court mandated to be in it. It's where we find a lot of success because you're setting your own alarm. You're committing and saying, yeah, I'll wake up at 515 and be out running at 530 in the morning. And if you commit to that, come out and run at 90% attendance for those first 30 days. Then you enter what we call our Next Steps program, which is you're feeling these great benefits from running. You're feeling good about yourself. You've been able to set goals. You've done things you didn't think you could do before. You're socializing with your teammates. All these great things are happening. 
what's next. Let's translate those good feelings, those positive behaviors, that discipline into self-sufficiency, into into jobs, into finding permanent housing, into training and education programs. And we do that through training with our external partners, whether it's Marriott or it's Carlton for customer service training, which many of our our members then go into and work in hotel or restaurant management, or partnering with companies like Accenture or Deloitte and doing interview skill workshops, resume building workshops, public speaking, so that continuing to build the confidence that our members have on these runs and starting to picture themselves back in the workforce or going forward. We also do have some financial assistance that we offer that will, as a grant, break down barriers. So, for example, if someone's entering into a training or education program and they're on track, they've done all that work to get there, However, they're in a treatment program, they're not able to work, or they haven't been in the workforce for a while, don't have the money to pay for books. So that's one of those barriers that we would knock down and then use financial assistance to be able to get them there to self-sufficiency. Rachel, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Matt, thank you. Thank you. Mark, thank you. Thank you, sir. God bless. Rachel Sparks is program director for Back on My Feet New York City. Mark and Matt are both members of the organization. More information at backonmyfeet.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nulk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.